Welcome back to the Outdoor Adventures Podcast. I've got with me uh, fill-in co-host, Chris Hayden. Welcome back to the program. Howdy. My cousin Dylan is the official co-host, and as soon as I gave him that title, he hasn't been able to make it back to the studio. So I think he's waiting for his check, and it's like a, kind of like a strike situation or something like that. But we've got with us in the studio James Brown the Fourth and Adam Bingham. These guys, salt of the earth, great guys. I call them Coasties. And so in my mind, I thought they both grew up here on the West Coast. And before we got started here, we were talking, and actually I found out James did grow up on the West Coast. But Adam, his dad was born around here, but he actually grew up on the East Coast. And so a lot of people, I don't know what, how you would define a Coastie, but in my mind, a Coastie is always got a reputation for being a little bit crazy, but also really resilient and being able to get things done when nobody else knows how to do it. So I just, I see them as guys that can just get it done. So James, do you want to elaborate on that at all? <laughs> well, thanks for the intro, Sam. Uh, I don't know about all that, but there has been a, maybe a misconception that there's such a thing as a crazy Coastie. I'll let everybody judge for themselves. Um, I think that growing up on the Oregon coast, uh, a lot of it has to do with being passed down from your parents, especially in my case, my father. Um, he grew up uh, kind of all over the place, but went to high school in Florence and uh, taught himself how to do a lot of things uh, from hunting to fishing and passed those things down to me. Um, at a young age, you know, I had little hip waders. Not a lot of people even know what those are anymore. So I was uh, probably a elementary schooler and, and got, a, got a set of hip waders. And my dad took me steelhead fishing up the Coos River. And to this day, you know, he looks back and can't believe he really did take a kid that young without a life jacket on up the, up the river. But it was kind of the way it's, you learn, you know, it, it, today... Folks maybe raised in the valley would, would, would wear a, a life jacket with their parent, but I was on the bank with no life jacket with water rushing by and my dad up the river from me and looking back down and hoping I was all right. Yeah, that, see, that's a coasty. You know, you went to Bymart and you got those hip waders for three ninety nine. Yep. You were out there getting it done. Probably didn't have a whole lot of clothes on either. You were just getting it done. Salt water in your veins is kind of how I picture it. You know, you grow up around all that salty air and just makes you a little tougher than us over here on the valley. That's just my opinion. And that's, I don't have any real data on that. It's like an intangible. I, I, I considered that a compliment, but there are some, there is that crazy reputation component that maybe is not complimentary. But yeah, we, I don't know. I think that maybe we take it as a compliment from time to time because that means that maybe we're not too soft, but, uh, it just, re you know, reminiscing back on those times, it's funny, all the little things that flood into your mind. I can remember, uh, cause as a, as a little guy, you're trying to cast out there and, and drift fishing is really hard because breaking off and re-rigging as you all know, uh, is one of the biggest challenges, challenges to keeping your ADD or, or whatever at bay because you, you can, you can break off and be done. But my dad got me into just finally, you're going to throw lures, you know, you're going to throw spinners. And, uh, but I remember getting out in those little hip waders and I'd, I'd be looking just to get that water about an inch from the top of my boot. Cause I could get that deep and get out there. And inevitably every trip, you know, I'd get water in my boots and then my feet would be cold and I might spend some time up in the truck while my dad's down on the bank and, 
Um, pushing the limit a little bit. Always, yeah, pushing the limit to get that little extra cast out there. But I can still remember my first steelhead uh, of that whole time. I only caught one, but it was on a, I want to say it was a flash and glow. It, no, uh um, spin and glow? No, it wasn't a spin and glow, but it, it was it was a it was a spinner with a silver blade, and it had the little orange beads up the middle. And I'm I'm drawing a blank on the it's like a buds, um, but anyway, I caught caught a caught a steelhead on that, and uh, was pretty you know kind of then got kind of quit quit fishing for steelhead, um, and sports took over for a while, but we also you know grew up with. Uh, fishing bass. My parents got a cabin out at 10 mile lakes. Uh, and, and when I was in sixth grade, uh, spent a lot of time early mornings with an outboard, getting up with a 11 root 14 foot and, uh, fishing nose hook night crawlers. Um, my dad and I would get out and, uh, he had a, he even had a syringe to put a little air bubble inside, oh, yeah. uh, anything to slow down the drop of that, that, that worm. Um, didn't fish artificial stuff hardly ever. Uh, we would even get crawdads and, and keep them. I'll never forget. Sorry, I can get sidetracked. You're, but No, you're good. That's the point. I'll never forget my dad. We caught crawdads up the river, and he put them in a crawdad trap, and we dumped them off on 101 in a little pond and waited a week to come back because we were going to fish those at 10 Mile. But he, so we had to come back, get those crawdads and they were still there. You know, he threw it out there where no one would find it and got those and went out and fished crawdads. But, uh, we would, a big thing for us too, was catching little bluegill, little bait fish in the weeds. And then we'd go out to Rocky point. Anybody who's ever been to Lakeside knows Rocky point, probably the most popular fishing spot on the lake. And, uh, you just hook right behind the dorsal fin on that little bluegill and throw that bluegill out there and, Eventually, that thing would start running around like crazy, and then you'd flip you'd flip your bale when a, when a bass would take it and let it run, and then snap the bale over and yank and caught my biggest bass, you know, at a young age, four or five pounds at doing that. But uh, that'll for, hook, so, that'll yeah. hook you on bass fishing pretty yeah, quick. You catch yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> and that artificial fishing was always a little, you know, just a little more challenging. Really, got into that a little bit more later, uh, as of the last five five years or more ish, um, but. Grew up doing a lot of crabbing, you know, uh, bat trout fishing out at Diamond Lake since third grade. My dad and I would do an annual and sleep in his pickup under the in the canopy in the snow with a, a propane heater until we fell asleep. Turn that off, playing cribbage at fourth grade. Get up in a no-covered 14-foot aluminum boat in the snow, bail it out if it was full of water, get out there and freeze and catch trout with power bait and Velveeta cheese and WD-40 and all the stuff. All the, the master tricks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So trap. My main, my main growing up was, yeah, doing trout and bass and then getting into some steelhead and then salmon as well, all those main fisheries that kind of the Oregon coast is known for. Yeah, and Chris and I are both steelhead fishermen, I would say. Like, if I'm going to pick a fish to go catch, I would choose a steelhead, you know, if I knew I could go out and catch one. If I wanted to, if the steelhead aren't running, then I'm going to go after whatever else I can fish for. But I know Chris does a lot of coastal steelhead. Now, Adam, you grew up on the East Coast, but then came back to the West Coast. So talk about kind of your experiences over there and then how you guys connected as friends and how that's kind of evolved over the years as far as outdoor related stuff. Uh, well, that's a fair question. I want to know what you catch with crawdad, but <laughs> that could be a different conversation. That's large mouth. Okay, yeah, there you go. They'll eat anything. Um, so yeah, I grew up and my dad grew up in Coos Bay. 
married my mom, long story. Anyway, uh, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And out there, I mean, we had boats and we would go out and catch their mahi-mahi. They'd call them dolphin. But, and that was terrifying the first time where it's like, oh gosh, I'm catching flipper. Like this is not <laughs> going to go over well, but it wasn't. Um, yeah, they made a movie. You might have been in that. Yeah. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe. I got no copyrights or anything. Yeah. <laughs> but um, And so, yeah, then out there, I mean, there's fish everywhere. And they're, they're great fish. Um, there's sam. I mean, no, no salmon. I'm sorry. There's dolphin. There's sailfish. There's marlin. There's wahoo. And so normally what you do is you'd go out in the morning with a, uh, with a cast net. And you can catch your fish out of anywhere. I took James one time, or my neighbors did, and we that's what they do. No bait. You just go out, catch them, and uh, that or uh, ballyhoo. Ballyhoo, yeah. yeah. So you guys knew each other while you were there, though? Or was that no, later No, no, this life? was after, later okay. on we went down there. Um, but so, yeah, you go out, catch your fish or, or your bait fish, and then you just troll. And there's everything out there. There's sharks. There's everything. Um, and so it, it was a good time. I, we'd go out, me and my dad would go out since I was five and it was either go to church or go fishing. And back then church wasn't as fun. So <laughs> fishing it was. And, uh, we, yeah, me and my dad would go out every Saturday, every Sunday for, I don't know, probably 10 years until then I moved, we moved over here. And had the opportunity. That's where I came over, met James uh, and a a great group of people. And, I mean, I don't know, never gone back to live. It it is definitely a fishing haven over there. If you can do it, I would recommend it every day of the week. Um, Probably shoot for like the December, March time because it gets a little warm. But it's, uh, it's a beautiful place. And that Florida fishing was all mostly offshore. Did you ever get seasick or did you have problems with that or no? Uh, actually, surprisingly, there I did not. And then I moved here and I, I did get pretty seasick now. The, the <laughs> so, West Coast. yeah. He likes to stay in the bay. He does a lot of crabbing. Yep, yep. <laughs> Love the crabbing. Uh, sometimes the patch helps, but not always. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's... It's a different place, but I, I've enjoyed the salmon fishing. And honestly, I mean, if I'm going to pick one, I would pick a salmon every time, but even between both sides. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're pretty spoiled on the West Coast, and I don't think we know it as much, but we see, you know, there's sunshine and all that stuff that goes along with Florida that is appealing from a West Coast perspective. You know, you look over there, and I've always wanted to catch a tarpon, so that's kind of a bucket list fish for me, and I've never targeted them, but I would love to catch one. There is a place in Florida where there's like just tarpon everywhere. And you if you throw a shrimp in, it it's like throwing like bait into like a like bass pool. Like it they just go crazy. Um but it it's it's a fun place and it is beautiful. I mean it's it is kind of flatter oceans usually and palm trees and sand. Uh did a lot of like Flat ocean fishing, bone—I mean everything. There, there's everything over there. Like, is it like mangrove type fishing for like? There bone is, fish there snook? is some. There, I mean, you can find schnook everywhere if yeah. you wanted to. Um, 
like Bimini is probably a 90 mile drive across the ocean. And that place is, it's like going to Africa if you just want to go find stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it was a blessing, but again, I, I'd rather be here. I mean, it, it's a blessing. And now you guys are here and you do, um, a bass fishing tournament every year, the group of group of high school buddies. Is that what it is? Or is it just, a, how has it grown? I think it's, you're on your what? Fifth, fifth year. Yeah. Fifth year. Yeah. yeah. We, uh, have a close friend that we have known or I have known since elementary school, but his family is blessed to have some property out in the sand dunes that, uh, they can never sell. Yeah. And if they, if they were ever to, uh, not want to own the property the state would take it back um it has uh two or three there's a couple of lakes but they have a there's three homes on two cabins and one home uh on those lakes um and they're all gated to get into but where everybody goes and runs around in the dunes on side by sides and and four wheelers and whatnot there's there's a fenced off lakes out there that they uh over time have originally were for duck hunting and they have blinds to this day on there and they would raise ducks and, and ankle band ducks that were just particular for those lakes uh, just to bring in other ducks to fly around with. And uh, at one time they would, you know, put rice down on one end and blow a whistle to get the ducks to fly back and forth. And it was it was quite a haven for that. But it's, it's not so much of a duck hunting lodge as it used to be. But now there's been um, largemouth bass have, you know, grown tremendously out there over the time. And... How it all started, actually, me and my friend Roger, uh, the Tomlin family, um, that, that's his family, but the Conrad Lumber and Conrad Forest Products is the, the longtime 100-year-old family that's owned it out there. Um, but we went out there with a couple of friends from college and, and Roger, and we were throwing lures off of the dock and, and caught catching bedded female uh, you know, hen, bass and it was spitting eggs. And I just thought, why are we, we should come out here and fish bass. Cause I grew up at 10 mile lakes thinking, and then seeing that I was like, this is something we need to do. And, and why not? And you know, all, all it ever takes is somebody to organize it, but you got to organize it. <laughs> and so, uh, that's what we did. I put together the deal and now we're on our fifth year and we make some swag and we call it kiss my bass. Uh, and it, it's become a ton of fun. We have 20 guys right now that go and we do a Facebook live draw where my daughter uh, who's 11 year olds, Beatrice has done that every year and you get a teammate and, uh, it's a random draw. Yeah. Random draw. And that's coming up here uh, second weekend in June. Um, and we'll do, we'll do, uh, winners, winners of that. You take best five fish. You got to take a photograph and, and of the scale. You got to see the whole fish. So no one's cheating. And, uh, and then with your partner afterwards, we do a horseshoe tournament and the winners of the, uh, bass tournament each get, oh, $700 each and, and the bass or the horseshoes three, $400 each. And we eat good and have a blast And the tournaments from 7am to two or 3pm. And, uh, so we've been, yeah, that's been something that that's newer, but something to keep the group going out and, uh, enjoying the property and, and being able to fish. And so that's gotten us real, the whole group inspired. We have a 20 guy tech string 
and uh, we keep in contact year round, and then the bass tournament comes alive, and it starts popping off about March though, where everyone starts talking. Everyone yeah, starts and we got talking. our teams a lot of drawn now, right now. Yeah. so everybody's able to talk trash, yeah. and uh, and and but that's made us all learn more about bass fishing, yeah. and learn about you know from drop shot to uh, all the newer stuff and different tubes and and uh, isn't that we've talked about that on here that. You know, you don't. Nobody pictures Oregon and bass fishing. Those aren't two things that typically come together. But as you know, the salmon and steelhead populations have declined a little bit, or the fishing hasn't been as good. All of us that just love to fish have kind of turned into okay. Well, let's figure something else we can catch. And you know, that whole pound per pound. I mean, bass are a fun fish to catch. Oh yeah, and they're aggressive. And so yeah. you don't have to be a great fisherman to attract a bass. I mean. To be really good at it, yes. And uh, the more time that fish has been caught, the harder that fish is to catch. But One interesting part is that it's never the same lure that wins the next year. Like we had one guy show up, and he had a spinner, and he couldn't lose. Like he almost every cast had – I mean, he really was good. He just had the hot lure for he the He had the hot lure. But then bait. next year everyone's like, okay – Black spinner on the yep, yeah. yeah. and then it was it was dead. Yeah, and yeah. that's fun when you're the guy that has the lure. Yeah, I went on a smallmouth trip like that just up at Green Peter, and we were just fishing for fun. And my lure was just on fire that day. I mean, I was out fishing guys like fifteen to one, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I was acting like it was all me, but I knew it was the lure. And so then my buddy that was in here earlier, he's like, "Can I borrow your rod for a little bit?" And then he caught like four in a row, and I'm struggling with other <laughs> stuff trying to get him to work, you know. So. Yeah. There, there is definitely something to that. Yeah. But. And I will say that tournament is that it's like, like he said, there, you never know who's going to win, how much. Last year, my teammate and I won. We caught two fish, you know, and a lot of guys didn't even catch a fish. But the year he's talking conditions. about with that, like, black spinner bait, it was you hot. know, our buddy caught three five-pounders, you know, Dang and, and yeah. they caught about 17 pounds in fish between their five. And uh, my teammate, and I was with Adam's younger brother, and – I don't know. We caught I probably 20 fish between us, but we just didn't get the weight. And uh, that was our best year we've ever had. But so you, we always say, no matter how good you are, you never know one fish can win it. Because there is eight, nine pounders out there. One, there's a few from six to nine out there, and you could catch one, and it can change the whole thing. So that's what makes bass and that tournament a lot of fun. Yeah, and I've fished with James a little bit. And with Adam, I've pretty much only – we've only crabbed with each other, which is always a good time. But James is another one of these guys that's just – if there's a fish in the water, I always have faith that he's going to probably have a chance at catching it. You know, he just – he's got like that – I don't know what it is, but there's just some guys out there that are just good at f- catching fish. And I, I put myself, and I've talked about this with other people on the show, I'm kind of in that middle, and I would say you're towards the higher end of somebody that knows how to go catch a fish. I, I mean, I don't know if it's reading water or just doing it since you were so little or what it is. I mean... I'll agree you know. with you, but don't give him. Yeah, time. no, I know. I'm, I'm like, oh, gee, thanks. No, because yeah. I don't know that I, yeah, th- thanks. That sounds But our really other nice. friends, but like Bill just, Higby talks about that. Man, if, if James is with you, he's going to catch something, <laughs> you know. The, I, what, the things, and this comes from being, growing up with my father and, and analyzing, you know, when you're analyzing what you're doing and where you're messing up, it it comes down to, my, my. I think my dad always says what it's like the top 10% catch 90% of the fish. And, and 
it's the little things that make the differences. So if you, a lot of times you might be talking to somebody and they're like, that doesn't matter. But if you have five of those things that they say doesn't matter and you're doing those five, maybe now all of a sudden that does matter that, you know, you are, it is making a difference. Um, and for me, one of the biggest things, if we're looking at like steelhead and bass for me and all fit and, and salmon, you know, quality time in the water. If, if your bait is working, if you're, if your herring spinning right and in the water, more like I'll be amazed sometimes at the like bass and, and steelhead where it comes to casting salmon, you're just setting it, you know, and trolling. But, but I, I'm always curious how many more times I cast than maybe the average guy that's out for the same amount of time or how much more time they're spending rigging up. And so that my, my dad has always said, you know, it's quality time in the water. So if that was one reason why a lot of guys got rid of the, the, the bait caster level wind reels, because anytime you're dealing with that backlash is time, not you're, you're avoiding quality time in the water. So if you're going to move to a spinning reel, you're going to have more quality time in the water. And the guys that are on that side that like the bait caster are going to say, well, I can get a longer drift, yep. you know, or, yeah. you know, but I, you're not a big fan of bait no, well, casters, right, Chris? Yeah. Well, cause I didn't grow up with them, you know, me too. Yeah, and it's a skill set you need to learn because it's very beneficial to use one when you're drift fishing. It's you're controlling that action as you're in the water, and to be honest, the you know the devil's in the details when you're fishing, especially bass fishing and steelhead fishing. And if you're not in the water, you're never going to catch fish. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many people, especially like up on the Columbia, you've been up on a boat long enough, you can tell when there's just garbage on your. On your on your lead on the spinner, you should be able to look at a rod and know it's running right, especially with spinners. But herring, you can too. Completely. Yeah, and a lot of people, I think, especially up there, if you've been on the boat for four or five days, you know, all fish for seven days a stretch, and day five you start getting tired, and then you start not catching as many fish because you're not paying attention, you know. And it's very important. I mean, I I kept track. It was uh, maybe 2018 or 19. It took me 62 hours to catch one hatchery steelhead on the Nestucca. And I was fishing three days a week. A lot from the bank because I wasn't running a drift boat that year. But I spent a lot of time in the water and just the, you know, the numbers weren't there or the presentation wasn't right. But yeah, it, it matters like a lot. If you want to be successful, it really matters. And I, I'd like to say, too, when I mentioned steelhead fishing down on the Oregon coast where we grew up, you know, Coos Bay, um, that we mainly fish the Coos, which has multiple forks, and the Coquille for the most part. Um, there's some other rivers all around there, too. But uh, it is mainly all bank fishing I grew up doing. So a lot of guys like y'all here in the valley think of most and, – and most people think of it being from a drift boat that didn't grow up in those coastal streams with those uh, – the nearby. And we're blessed down there with, you know, tens of 20s of miles of bank access that you can go. And, and now they've charged – you know, Warehouser, whoever is yeah. charging a little bit of money. But it's not the hundreds of dollars um, – to get those those permits now but there was times there was a, there was a spell where a friend of mine Justin Traver we grew up together and we were both unemployed and in our early 20s and we both went back and stayed with pretty much with my parents and his parents were down in Coos Bay and we fished 5 out of 7 days per week bank fishing all day and we would go 
fish from one mile to five mile. Or we'd start at five mile typically and work our way down up the river and catch fish that hit, hit all of our holes. Then we'd go back up to five mile and work our way back down. And I mean, that year we both caught, I mean, I was in the eighties or nineties, you know, just for, and that was over a four or five week period, you know, of, of landed steelhead. And, and he was somewhere, you know, not that high, but he, was probably around <laughs> 50. he might've been around 50. <laughs> But uh, we had a blast and uh, great stories about getting up in there and the logging would shut the road down sometimes. And we'd come in from Coquille and came over the mountain one day. Great story. We come over the mountain one day with my dad and his buddy Elmer to come in because logging had that cut off. And we want, and we're like, oh man, no one's going to be up there. So we we're going to have the entire river above two mile to ourselves. If we go clear down to Coquille, come over the mountains, come down the backside, we get up early, the four of us, we all do that. Who's you, Traver, Jim, and Elmer? Elmer, yeah. That's a good group. And uh, we come down the backside, and the gate's locked. Oh. And we're at like nine mile, maybe a, uh, maybe nine or ten mile. And we wanted to get down to five mile, so we're miles away. And we're like, well, we're here. Let's start. We get out of the truck, park at the gate, and we start walking and looking for places to fish. Me and Traver are busting hump. We're way ahead of these guys. You know, they're, what, 30 years older than us. And we're going, and you'd see these old crummies coming up. The old loggers are coming up and passing us every once in a while. And this little Datsun truck, you know, comes by with big old, you know, chainsaws, big old bars on them. And this guy comes cruising by, and we see him. And about five minutes later, it's coming back down river on the tailgates. My dad and Elmer nice. sitting on his tailgate, driving right back by us, just waving and smiling. And we're sitting there busting our humps. We're a mile down river ahead of them. And they just are laughing as they go by. And, he, he, and they told him, don't pick them up, you know. And so they got down there. But we ended up being a wonderful day. We got all the way down there, caught the biggest steelhead of my life, a, a native that day, 20, right, right, big, huge buck, around 20 pounds. And, uh, that same day, we end up have to hike all the way back up to that spot. And I'll never forget Justin. He caught. He had this hen on, and he stepped forward off the bank and completely disappeared. Bloop, oh, gone. <laughs> totally under a deep hole. All that on. came up was the rod, and he ended up landing that fish, but went, disappeared completely underwater with my dad and Elmer watching from the the road up above us. Was but, he in waders? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, Full scary. waders. Bloop. Just gone. <laughs> oh, he's biting that fish. It was hilarious, but he still landed it. Nice, like 12-pound hen. It was great. Ended up being a wild, great day. But anyway. Oh, that's a good story. That's, yeah. Those are the times that you think when you're experiencing them, you're like, well, we're going to do this every year. I can't wait for it. And then, it's always you know, gonna happen. how many yeah. years ago was that? Yeah, and that shoot, probably never 15, had 15, 16. Yeah, and it, and, it, we've, and, and it has deteriorated all of the, the whole fishery uh, on all those rivers down there has, has lessened and lessened. I don't have the stories like we did back then. Well, steelhead fishing in general, I think, has gotten a lot more difficult than it used to be. It's just the counts just haven't been, at least in yeah. Oregon, what they used to be, at least on the rivers that I fish. I haven't. When we had, what, was it two or three years ago, we had that really good winter run that I fished with you a couple times, and that was my first time getting back into it, and my wife just happened to be out of town, and James was going fishing, so I we fished hard one day, and we had such a good time. I'm like, I'm just going to stay at your house, and we'll go do this again the next day, you know, and uh, that was when I first started realizing that I had gout, and so I remember <laughs> you, had a, you had a fish on, 
and I'm trying to get there with this net and I'm kind of gimping over and you're like, can someone else net this fish? This guy's got gout. You know, you're yelling that across the, the whole system, but it was good. I mean, we got into some fish and I, I remember watching just even the night before tying up your gear and that anticipation and just figuring out the right setup and having all those rigs ready to go. And I remember you saying that back then. So, I mean, it's cool that your dad gave you that advice and it's stuck with you all these years and you've shared it with other people. And it, it really is true. It's all about that time in the water. Cause I fish with those guys that are on the bank the whole time, you know, mm -hmm. they get it hung up that first time and they didn't have anything ready to go. So, you know, 25 minutes later before they're back in the water and mm -hmm. by then you might have two fish on the bank. You yeah. Know? You never know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've seen it like fishing on the Nestaka under the one Oh one, uh, I, I went by myself one day and there's this old guy and his wife showed up and she brought a lawn chair and he was four casts to fish. I was like, wow, man, that's fast. And I just watched him and it was the exact, like the perfect seam catches his wife's two, two fish another 10 minutes and then they leave. And I'm like, that's, yeah, exactly. well done. And some yeah. of it, yeah, it just matters what what your knowledge of the yeah, river bottom and, and where they're laying. Yeah. I you know I ran into him again, and th those are the guys you want to chat up a little bit. And he's like, "Oh, I've been fishing this river for like sixty years." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, you're the guy." Yeah, yeah. You're the one I want to guy. When people talk about how do you improve at fishing, it's watching those people. Yeah, that's what I think. Being a good at observation and 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 really taking note. And like finite details, you know, like where exactly did he land? How much weight did he have? How long was his leader? What did his presentation yeah. look like? All those little things. It's not it, that that's all those things that will separate you. If you can take note when you see somebody who's better than you and don't think, you know, more than the next guy, because you see that all the time, too, where people will try you know, all sorts of different setups they heard about or they think might work, but don't reinvent the wheel. Find somebody around you that knows more than you or is better than you and watch them. If I'm on the river, like you said, and you see an old guy like that or, or anybody who's catching multiple fish, then then what, where, where exactly did his line land? Yeah. How did he react with the tip of his rod? You know, I remember you can too. drop it into a slot where people are letting it float right over the fish without lowering that tip three feet. There's just so many little things that being observant. Yeah, I remember everyone that morning was casting on the far side of the river, and they were running big. Uh, they're the foam bobbers, like those cheap big three-ounce ones, and he's running a little tiny like pencil bobber, and he's just right in some slack water like 12 feet out in front of him. And a couple days later, I ran down there and caught two fish real quick, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is a spot. But now the river's changed so much, it's just not the same there anymore. Yeah. But he was great to talk to, and it's like we've talked several times, especially steelhead fishing, uh, why reinvent the wheel? I mean, how many guys were catching stuff on, like, spinning glows and corkies, and I still fish a yarny. I mean, Oh, big time. They I caught fish. more fish than anything on a yarny. Yeah, and a lot of guys, like diehard steelhead guys, will still run them. Uh, but when you get new into that, like, I, I, a lot like you, played a lot of sports. So I stopped fishing and hunting quite a bit, and then I got back into it in my early 20s. And, like, I didn't even remember what it was like catching steelhead and Chinook and stuff. And luckily for me, my cousin's a guide. So I kind of, anytime, I, any day yeah. I want, I can jump on a boat. It's, very, it's a benefit that I have. You know, I'm pretty blessed. But I always ask him, what are you running? Where at? And, he, and when we're fishing that there's not clients, they're all guides on the boat because they're all buddies. So that, it's like a wealth of knowledge. And you have to pay attention because, you know, the numbers are way down. 
more people are fishing and it's super competitive and it's like yeah. that's true yeah. and i i mean i have a hard time getting up for work in the morning but i'll get up at midnight and go to go fishing i've done it so many times you go have pick to, a, to get a spot go pick a buddy up and, right? and it's funny because i used to catch bank fishing yeah yes especially bank fishing i used to catch a lot of hell from one of my friends why are we here this early and like 10 minutes later like 15 more trucks show up I'm like well that's why we better get down there mm-hmm. you know? that's uh yeah, there's not as many. I mean, I, I was thinking about while you guys were talking, uh, our friends that live up Greengate, mm-hmm. you know, where they would just go and like jump in the river and just throw fish oh, up yeah. onto the like. Not anymore, but it was an interesting time. Yeah, as many people, but I was talking to my grandfather the other day. He's going to be 89 this year. He came here in '62 from California. And he said in the late 60s, he used to go up on the trask and shoot salmon with a bow, mm-hmm. him and his buddies. Yeah, he said, oh, man, you could walk across the fish. Mm-hmm. There were that many. And they were all, you know, I catch a big Chinook. It's kind of big, I guess, you know. And then you look at Polaroids, and it's like, oh, every fish was bigger than that in, like, 85. <laughs> yeah. You know? It does seem like, though, that we'll have these good runs every once. You know, it's not like it's, I mean, we're making it sound like it's really bleak, but it's, I mean, I think the Springer they were worried about them this year, but then it seems like I'm seeing a lot of guys catch in all of a sudden. I know they're starting to maybe finally do something about the sea lions. I'd heard through the grapevine they were going to take some of the sea lions out. Because I, I think that's the biggest thing as far as a predator. Like They're, yeah. they're keying in on these fish, well, and they're, they're chasing them into the rivers, and then they're just hammering well, it's them. Probably, it, honestly, it's a lot of fishermen don't want to accept the fact that it's all things. Yeah. It's commercial fishing. It's... I mean, I'm not a huge climate change guy in the political sense. But that's been huge. But Kill, it's been a huge. A lot of spawning fish. Kills mo- all those fish that run out there do not make it to come back. And then you have the predators that, you know, our state for a long time has been unwilling to accept the fact that you got to deal with them because we're dumping millions of dollars into hatcheries and all these other programs. You know, and I hate to say, but a lot of like, the native organizations have been doing kind of more than we have. You go up into Washington and the fishing's great. You go up into Alaska or Canada. I mean, it's a lot better than in Oregon. And I mean, there's other ways you can get around that. And even if it's still bleak, I'm still going, (laughs) you know, I'm not going to not fish. Yeah. And I I think that there's a lot of, there's good organizations that are trying to make a a difference and trying to get, some habitat change and just various, but like you say, there's a million different issues yeah. that, that lead to it. And not fixing one's going to fix the whole thing. You got to kind of just tackle it all at the, at the same time. It's hard to do. I haven't even bought a license yet this year for fishing. I just haven't got around to really? it, but yeah. I just, oh, I'm January 1st. Usually I'm the same way. Guy. January something. Yeah. yeah. I haven't but, caught a lot of fish this year, but I've caught a few. Have yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. The, uh, I, I, you're like you're saying though. I, it's hard. You'd have to get down to that biologist level and yeah. that you know environmental scientist to get you know I, like you said yes the sea lion, but I don't think they can decimate you know the amount that we're seeing. Uh, it's like you said, so many different ecological. You I know, think it's the ocean factors. Stuff. That, yeah, there's a lot of food out there and yeah. and temperatures and 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 I, I just don't know how many fish we're really getting. Uh, the hatcheries are really putting in and how many native fish are spawning. It was like, it was funny this year. It was one of the first times I was talking to my dad and one of his friends and we were saying, why don't we fished up these rivers for, you know, 
20, 30 years or more or whatever them. And why don't we see these fish bedding and spawning together? Yeah. We're not, where are they doing that? Where are they doing that? And so we're right where the smolt for the hatchery are put into the creek, but they're, I've spent enough time there where I'm not seeing thousands of fish spawning right there. So where is that taking yeah, place? And are question. they, are they almost, you know, is it happening or, or what are we truly relying on? Um, native hatchery, you know, I, there's just stuff that I don't have the, I don't have the I, know how I, on or the, or the studies or knowledge I, on. I and and it would be curious to know where are all these tens of, you know, these yeah. thousands and thousands of fish. I, I fish doing the LC. I fish the LC a bunch when I can get down that way and they have a hatchery there and you can fish like right up next to the hatchery. We've caught some big fish there, but they release a lot of fish and it's like 1500 come back. Yeah. And what's happening to the 1500? We're obviously not catching them all. I just, I mean, that's a numbers thing, right? You do the math, but I, I have a friend of mine who lives on the LC. His family's been there for, you know, like a hundred years. And he was telling me, you know, he's 74 this year. And he said, man, when I was a kid, this thing was full of fish. What happened? And I'm like, it's like a question that no one can answer. It seems to me, or, or everyone has a different answer, but you know, it's yeah. like you said, where are the fish spawning at? You should see them bedding up. You know, you've seen a sa- we've all seen a salmon or steelhead make a bed. Yeah. Right. But why aren't we seeing those by the thousands? Or they got to do it somewhere. And that's just odd. And my even my dad and his buddy, I said it to him on a text thread, and they're both like, "Yeah, that, you know, not you say that." It's a good question. It is odd. Why have we never seen them like this? Is the area or or where they close it to the public and say well, this is protected spawning area? You would think yeah. they do that at every river because they they. Preface, you know, they, they make the ground with with gravel or or, or whatever. Getting it ready for them. Yeah, getting yeah. it ready for them. But it's like they're just letting it randomly happen, and I don't know that it's happening. Well, and I know there's been some dams removed, and there's been different. You know, they're always changing the environmental conditions to try to make it better for the salmon yeah. and the steelhead. Or you know, there's all kinds of political influence and all these yeah. things. But like you said, even at the predatory level. It's got to be bigger ocean condition type stuff. Because I would think so because they spend the majority of their life right out in the ocean. If you're talking, let's say, a, I'm, a, what are they, five years for a salmon, roughly? I think there's I mean, different, you know, three-year well, three fish, five-year fish. Yeah, let's say it's five years. Well, they're probably spending three out in the out in the ocean pro- or more. I don't know. We would have to ask someone. But, like, sea lions are killing them, but not in the – I mean, sea lions hammer – uh, uh, sturgeon way more than anything else, well, especially they, release sturgeon. I mean, below, I mean, they can, I've seen guys get in fights with each other for catching those undersized sturgeon and letting them go on sea lines or seals, you know, picking them up. Well, and it's not like, uh, it's just an Oregon thing though, too, but oh, Alaska, you know, Alaska, they've, their king fishery oh, has bad. gotten really in bad shape from what yeah. it used to be, you know, and they're yeah. trying to figure oh, yeah. that out. So. Us talking about this, I think it's funny because we spend so much time thinking about how to catch fish, and less time thinking about why they're not there. Yeah, you know, like, and 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 what one thing about fishermen is that we have to be perpetual optimists, and and I always think that's funny when I hang out my I do beat up on my dad because he's he's pessimistic, 
but he he'll I'll argue and I'll he'll, I'll say you oh yeah tell me you're a realist dad uh, you know but he he says he's a realist but you got to wake up in the morning be no like I'm gonna catch fish this is gonna be an epic day yeah. and that's what keeps me you know that's what I see separates a lot of guys that want to fish but we we always are just thinking about how we're gonna catch fish how it's gonna be an epic day. And, uh, but then to sit and talk about, you know, the finite details of why the hat, you know, the runs are down, it's, it, it doesn't change where we got to still catch fish. Yeah. And yeah. it wasn't a topic I thought we were going to talk about. <laughs> no, today, but, but it's, we're all fishermen. It's pertinent. I mean, yeah. yeah. My wife always asked me, why do you keep going? I'm like, well, I don't know anything else. Yeah. I mean, when I was at you, you know, fishing with your dad as a kid in waders, I used to fish up on the hog line, June hog run that doesn't exist as a kid with my grandfather walking boat to boat when you could just walk across the river. And that, you know, that's why I explain to people who don't do it. It's like, well, it's the only thing I know. So I don't, I mean, I've tried to supplement a little bit of my fishing (laughs) by going to Alaska or going to Baja, uh, which is great, but it's like winter, you know, steelhead fishing or salmon fishing. It's what we grew up with. But I think, uh, uh, like fishermen don't talk about it enough. And I, I poised the question to my friend the other day, who, I, who I've done most of my fishing with in life, that if they asked us to not fish for five or six years, but to still pay and fish would come back, would you do it? And I said, I would, because I could find something I'm else sure. to do. Yeah. But I, I always wonder how many guys would say, yeah, I'd do that. I'd do that. I'd do that too. For, for the salmon to come back in big numbers. It, I know that's not a realist. Yeah, rub a lamp, ask the genie. But come no, on. No, for sure. The, the, that money isn't going to make the fish show up. No, no obviously. It's not. it's not making it show up right now. No, it's not, but we're still fishing hard. Yeah, I'll, I'll quit fishing, but I'm not going to pay them to, to, yeah. and, and cross my fingers that that's going to make the fish show up. Well, I'll just quit gives, fishing for it. But, but, but it gives them funding. Know. Yeah, but funding. I mean, it does for sure. Sounds. Yeah, we're. I'd have. I mean, we give the government a lot of money. Oh, a bunch. They could find. They could find some other places. Probably. You know what? People would. People would 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 work those step programs right now. They're volunteers anyway. So let's. I mean, all they they got to do is get the milk and the eggs and make something last year. I think they took sixty-three million in that last package from the federal government for salmon. And I see that number. I'm like, wow. I hope salmon come back. (laughs) <laughs> but are they going to? That's the question. Yeah. Well, now that we're all thoroughly depressed on the, <laughs> I ain't depressed. Uh, uh, no, because uh, I, I know I'm still going to go fishing. Yeah. And to me, it's even when I was in San Francisco fishing by the San Francisco Bay Bridge, and the there's 70 guys out there to catch one 20-pound halibut a day. They're still out there fishing because yeah. it's that what you're getting at, that perpetual optimist that is in a fisherman that like, okay, today's going to be the time. Or yep. as soon as that rod starts to bounce, even if it's a little sculpin, this it could have been that hell of it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's something that we all enjoy, right? It's just like the night before, like I can't sleep. Yeah. So Tomorrow's like, oh, going to be good. Tomorrow's going to be a good. And even if Epic. it's not, I still have a great, because I'm with my buddies. Even if I'm by myself, it's like. I'd rather be standing in a freezing river in the middle of December than being at work. That's for sure. That's true. That is true. Bad day fishing beats a good day working all day long. No doubt. Um, So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about things you guys have done together, Adam and James. Like I know you guys have done a fair amount of crabbing with each other, right? And you you had a recent incident on a crab pot. I don't know if Adam was with you, James, but where that cormorant got involved. I wasn't there for that one. No, but yeah, we that I would say that's one of the best fisheries where we grew up. I mean, you have the, I believe it's last I heard it was still the second deepest bay on the West coast uh, of the United States, Coos Bay, Oregon. And 
we have an amazing crab fishery there and growing up that's that's something I've done since a child. And, oh yeah. And Adam's dad was always great. Adam's dad was always the guy that would uh, put him in overnight and get and him. We'd all the, go we, pick him up the next we, day. We'd be and... sleeping in. <clears throat> excuse me. We'd sleep in a lot of mornings and get up, and his dad would already have crab caught, brought in, cooked, and and the pot you could set eat again. Right on the on the shoreline yeah. and yeah. So I don't know. If take a bunch of traps out there and drop them in and just let them soak through the night and then go yep. pick them all up. I was going to say, I don't know that that's super advisable. A lot of people <laughs> feel a certain way about it. It's yeah. I, I believe it's, it is legal, yeah. but, uh, you can lose, you know, the tides can rip, rip, rip your pots, different directions. You can lose them. Uh, people can check them for you. Uh, but it, it is a great way. And, and, and that's something that, we know some people that do that, and and actually the last time I went out, I checked four or five of a of a family friend's pots that they put up the bay, and I had twelve keepers uh, in the first four poles, and then I only needed uh, twenty four more to limit, and we banged those out in a couple hours and came in with thirty six crab here just a couple weeks ago. Um, so there, yeah, and that's not in Coos Bay. Epic. Don't go there. Yeah, yeah, don't go there. Uh, <laughs> But no, that's down there, and and so crabbing is 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 awesome. But yes, we other than dealing with the the sea lions, seals are a lot nicer to your traps and 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 whatnot. Uh, the more you use traps, you're gonna, which is uh, gonna keep keep the uh, the sea lions away more so than like a ring that lays flat and the baits exposed. But we've pulled in traps that have been torn to pieces by sea lions. Uh, for years, people have sworn that the, that the sea lions don't eat chicken. I've watched a sea lion come up out of the water and chomp down a piece of chicken looking at me. Um, so they, they find protein. Eventually, they're figuring out that's protein, and it's going to make them you know, feed them to, at some level. It might not taste as good as everything else, but... Uh, they're trying to get to 1,000 pounds, you know. Yeah. Keep so, eating, you know. It, just, so every, just when I went out counts. the other day, we, we did. We, we, let, we got that limit, but... Uh, there was a you see the sea lion working the pots and they'll go and they'll see your buoy and then they follow the rope down and they flip it over mangle it and then they go on to the next one and you're sitting there throwing stuff or trying to get them to knock it off and take off or driving toward them and yelling at them that's all you can really do uh but it was like you were saying sam it was funny because this of all the times this was the first time that um we Found an abandoned. You can tell. You can just tell when things have been lost or abandoned. That the ropes are dirty. They've they've been sitting for a long time. The tide has pulled them in and out from the depths, and uh, we could just tell that there was no one within any vicinity looking or any other line of uh, of buoys connected to this one. So we went over and we pulled it, and uh, it was a ring, and in it was a dead cormorant, and it was it had been eaten by crabs. And it, it, what had happened, right, is it had gone down or chased this trap, this ring down and going for the fish bait that was in it, went after it, got itself hung up into this cloth netting that's on those rings and found itself its demise. And then crab showed up and ate it. And we pulled that thing in and we had a one large keeper <laughs> that was eating cormorant. And I had you to You found my there. cormorant ring? <laughs> yeah, I got your cormorant ring. My- oh, you baited it with cormorant? Of course cormorant? I do. That's how... I always like to throw out one cormorant yeah. oh, ring. Did you, did you find it alive, or how'd you get it in there? I don't share secrets. <laughs> it was just funny because we had a, a, a you know cormorant baited, big big dungy in there, and uh, 
I, I had actually taken my girlfriend uh, for her first time with my family crabbing and pulling this big black bird in the bottom of this thing. And I had to sit there and break its neck and bones and pull it out of this whole mesh, you know, this netting, because it was so tangled in there. You could see this thing struggled. They could probably hold oh, their, yeah. I'm sure they can hold their breath for a minute or two or maybe more. Yeah, they're but, a big bird. Yeah, they? it got yeah. down there and it was all jumbled up. But trying to get it out of that stupid thing to not bring that whole carcass back in. And <laughs> and then the one keeper was all tangled in it too. And I it ate good. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you see those nature shows where those guys tr- put the, chain around the cormorant you know and they dive down and catch the fish for them but then they can't swallow it they spit it in their boat so i mean they train them to go down and get wow. fish wow for them. no i've not seen yeah. that uh, look at that it's on uh, discovery channel or something <laughs> you know i've seen it not a family secret no yeah no but i mean but they usually keep them alive so that's where you're going true, a little different true. direction i like yeah. to do my own thing yeah no i would say like you know chris and i are both unique to that we grew up in the valley and we were talking about how you coasties are a little, you know, you got a little salt water in your veins. You can get things done. But I would consider myself a hybrid. And I don't know if you relate to this, Chris, but like, because my family had a timeshare over at the coast. So we were at the coast two, three times a year. So we were always at the coast, crabbing, clamming. You know, my dad used to fish off the jetties, fish for surf perch and that type of thing. And and so I always felt like I was more of a local than just the normal weekendy tourist. And that was my one connection to being like, okay, I'm kind of a, kind of a coasty too. Yeah. My dad always did everything like it did. I mean, there was always, you go through the year, there's always something to do in the outdoors. So my dad would be like, we're going to go clamming. It would be after school, but you know, uh, sometimes I'd go to school late because we were clamming, we're crabbing, we're fishing and we're always doing stuff over there. I mean, it's the, we're so close to it, mm-hmm. you know. I and mean, the quality of that seafood when you get it fresh. Oh, so good. I mean, sure. It's just so much different than it's anything amazing. you've ever I was going to say, you ever peel mussels off the, off the rocks? Those are pretty money, too. Yeah, it's a, it's Unless a special thing. Unless it's a red thing. tide, that's not good. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Growing up on the coast, and this is maybe a noxious thing about us, but I won't, I won't buy seafood at a restaurant typically, rarely ever. Maybe a clam. Maybe a, a raw oyster, oyster or something. I, I had so. some oysters this weekend up in Portland, but it was, you know, they weren't even locally. There were some Seattle or, you know, Yakamoto's or whatever they yeah, are. Yeah, I like those. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it is, it's like you learn the difference. A lot of, it's funny, it's sad to some people that, you know, that you think about they've never had anything that wasn't frozen prior. And, yeah. and you get things frozen coming right in out of the boats, you know, but, but eat, eat something fresh to table. Uh, it's hard to, it's so hard to beat that it's hard. I'll, I'll pick something else. I'm going to go out to eat. Um, that, but everybody, a lot of people just, that's all they're used to. And that, that's, that's one thing we'll do too, is always get a bunch of oysters Yeah, and do them a bunch of different ways. Yeah. A lot of that bass tournament yeah. too. Oh, and yeah. you guys, I mean, you're the first guy that ever showed me the steaming oysters thing. We always, my dad always fried oysters or I'd had them on barbecue, like bacon wrapped and things. And they were good. But uh, I mean, the them? fried ones always make me sick for some reason. But man, once I had your steamed oysters, I never want to eat them any other way. I mean, they're so good that way. So, yeah, yep. the just a screwdriver, yeah. some butter, and yeah, you know, we always had them uh, sauce. raw. Like my dad has a oyster knife, like with his initials on it. Oh yeah, because oh, yeah. I grew up in the. My dad was a fireman for thirty years. My grandfather was too. But they would have a big oyster feed every year, so it'd be like Hubbard, Aurora, Woodburn would get together, and they would go down to. Uh, Yaquina Bay at the farm and fill the back of his truck up with 
bushels of oysters nice. and they just drink hams like the worst <laughs> beer I don't care what anyone says but hams is disgusting and eat oysters all night so in my backyard growing up there's just oyster shells <laughs> so I've been eating them my whole life my dad loves like the beef steaks and I can't stand the I mean they're just too much but uh, like raw on the half shell I don't know if there's anything better as seafood goes than that for me yeah Washington just opened a uh a season for uh, where you can actually go harvest your own yeah. oysters. Which you, you just got to leave Oregon. the shells, right? I think leave yeah. the shells out there. So like a native raw. I don't, I don't think we'll ever see that yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, well, we've harvested our own oysters before, but uh, yeah, I don't know how. We, we leave the shells somewhere. Yeah. They, well, all you got to do is go near a farm and they, they break loose and they're all over oh, yeah. the place. Yeah. And they're just big old. All over the shore. Yeah. You just, I'll tell you, I mean, it probably doesn't matter. We went under the McCullough Bridge, right? Coos Bay North Bend Bridge. And, uh, that was a long time ago. You were young. Very yeah. Young. This is before, back when it was legal. <laughs> but we would, we, we would be headed out to Lakeside going out to my cabin. My cabin was boat access only, and, and we'd have a bunch of guys post 18 years old and uh, going to spend days on end having fun out there. And we'd, we'd, we'd go and stop on the other side of the McCullough Bridge, headed out toward Lakeside, and we'd run down on the beach into the mudflats when the tide was low, and there's oysters are everywhere because they break loose from all the farms and are washed all over. And we, oh, could, we'd put them in garbage grab, bags, whatever it took, and get Yeah, out you could there. grab as many as you want. And well, they were going to go to waste. Yeah, they weren't going to. Waste not yeah. whatnot. Well, and yeah. some of them may not be from here because they're growing all kinds of stuff in those farms. You were You were... Taking care of the invasive species. Absolutely. Yeah, really. we're doing a favor. Pioneers, really. Yeah. We got a couple 12 inch, 12 inch <laughs> oysters off of that, you know? Yeah. Those things were some doozies. But yeah. uh, we were talking about I, just because I was eating oysters the other day with my, my girlfriend up north, and, and uh, I was saying, I wonder how many oysters in one sitting I've put down. You know, maybe in a, in a 24 hour period, I've put down. And that's a tough one to call because some people might say I've had three or five or 10 or 12. But I was thinking I'm up towards of thirty six, oh, yeah. maybe couple dozen. At least put down I, two I've dozen. I've done probably a triple dozen before. Yeah. We've been to the Bassa. They got the Bay Area Sportsman Association down there, and it's all you can eat at their auction. It's all you can eat oysters, and they just keep that table flowing, smoked. Well, uh, even at that uh, rotary uh, crab feed, yeah, you we guys were always cooking up oysters there, and there was always True. a fair <laughs> amount of sampling, quality control. Well, you know. making sure they're good. Yeah, yeah. you got to make sure that the guests are happy. <laughs> My yeah. company would do yeah, that. Yeah, more than two yeah. or three. The key yeah. quality control is probably those nights when I probably, that's hard to know. <laughs> you don't know how, how many is the most oysters yeah. you're put down in a night. That's a good question. My company would do that for like our yearly meeting because I work for a co-op. And they would spend, I don't know, like fifty or 60000 on seafood. Uh-huh. Whoa. Yeah. And sometimes, like, if you're in a certain position in the company, they would ask you to, like, come work the door or whatever. But a couple of us went down kind of late in the day and just kept on eating. I ate so many. I don't know how many, but it could have been a couple dozen. It was a lot. And, you know, we're, it's like my coworkers are making them for us. And they're like, are you guys done? I'm like, just keep bringing them because yeah. we can eat those things all day. And the next year it was like no employees allowed to go unless they're working. <laughs> <laughs> I had so many of those things. I mean, God, they're good. So I had one more story that I was going to mention about James. So this cracks me up. He was he, he earns this work trip at work and he worked for a financial services company. He's still in financial services. So is Adam. Uh, you're the outlier in agriculture. Agriculture, yeah. But um, anyway, uh, 
he goes on this company paid for trip and I'm picturing kind of a private yacht type setup. And so James is going, okay, I'm going to be offshore. I got to go get, I got to go catch a fish. So you tell the story. (laughs) Tell us what you bought and what transpired. Oh, they probably dumb luck, but it was, uh, yeah, we were down in the British Virgin islands and I was just going and I don't, I I just thought if I'm going to be down there and going to be yachting or, or, you know, in a cat catamaran sailboat between islands, why don't, shouldn't I figure out if I should take something? And so I went just to the local sportsman's warehouse and looked for whatever, you know, saltwater, tropical water lures they had. And, uh, I probably could have gone online, but it was more spur of the moment. I didn't really expect much. You know, this is kind of like you're saying, you know, you just give it a shot and see what happens. But uh, I bought, it was probably about a 12-inch feathered green and yellow duck colors. Always uh, good bait. Uh, yeah. Excuse me. Uh, duck colored. Uh, so, they, yeah, definitely something to eat. And... Uh, it, it had to, you know, so anyway, it was for, it was for saltwater fish and we take it down there and in between every Island, when we had the motor up and running or just the sails, you're clipping along pretty good down there. And, and it, uh, I, we had the, the, the boat had, he had his own tackle too, which was funny. These guys, they had some tackle, but it was just like stuff you would never really use. And it was the stuff people had left on the boat or whatnot. And, uh, I, he had a, he had a huge reel, uh, like an old pen a thousand or yards of line, you know, on it or whatever, and uh, heavy duty. And I would just do that lure on there, and uh, you could send it back there, and you could see that thing. I put it out there. It looked like almost 100 yards, you know, because I was like, let's just get it way back there and see what happens. And I did no research on how to catch anything like that, and I just put that big lure on there, and uh, you could see it out there, and it would dig into the swells and pop out and shoot up in the air and dig in and pop out and – you're just cruising out there, and uh, I hooked up twice. Yeah, it uh, one one day I was laying on the front of the boat, and they came and oh, you got something on, something big, something's yanking your rod all over. And I ran back there, and it was off. How oh, you lost it? And then, sure, sure enough, the n- next day, same thing. Went back there and had probably a 20, 20 plus pound uh, big eyed tuna. Reeled that thing in and. Uh, was pumped, super pumped. Uh, did have a chef on the boat that was uh, leaned vegetarian, uh, so she was she loved the beauty of that fish, and and she shed a tear <laughs> when I got that thing in when I was ready to sashimi that thing up, and uh, for her heartstrings, I went ahead and let it go. Oh my God. You did get a great picture though. Yeah. I remember when you were on that trip and I don't know yeah. when I got the picture. I got, and I'm like, sure, of course, this guy's out on a work trip and he catches this big old tuna. On the, oh, it, was just, it was a beautiful fish. It was oh, really, and it's yeah. a cool picture. You're in like a tank top holding yeah, this yeah. thing. Yeah, that's no a, one I like expected it to happen. I yeah. wish you'd uh, tell a story where you ate it instead of. I know. It, honestly, it was. It was like literally. She uh, she shed a tear, and it was. She was young. This young little chef and her boyfriend were the captains of that boat, and I just said, "Okay, I don't want to break her heart anymore." Cause she just wanted to see that fish tofu. live. Yeah, and then well, then she cooked me lamb salad. and a wagyu. <laughs> Yeah, you're a nice guy. Because <laughs> I, I would have never have done that. Yeah. 
But it's a cool story. I mean, yeah, to me, is. that's the heart of an outdoorsman, right? Yeah, you're, you're going somewhere where you're supposed to just be on a leisure activity. And I always do this when we go on vacation. I start looking for things that I could do. You know, could I go on a little hunt over here? Or could I, you know, when we go to Hawaii, I'm like, oh, could we do this little goat hunt or this pig hunt? Or could I go on a fishing trip? I always try to fit that in to where it doesn't take too much of my time away from the family, but I could get a little outdoorsman check you know i'm the same way it's like when my wife and i decide to go on vacation it's like well are we gonna go fishing or are we gonna go hunting and luckily if i go anywhere down south you know my, my wife loves going to mexico and she likes that kind of offshore running plugs like what you guys did in florida so she'll stay on the boat all day but it's like it's hard to go to new york with you know with her because there's no fishing to be done over there yeah for sure yeah, you're not that into the shopping on the fancy God, stores. Oh, my God. It's like, why in the hell would I want to go to Brooklyn? Yeah. Wouldn't. You wouldn't want to go. No, I wouldn't <laughs> want to go. No, hell no. All right. Well, what else you got, James? Or Adam, what do you got? What do you got for us? What have we not covered that you think is important for our listeners to to hear about? I will say one crab in Florida is a stone crab, and they're all claw, like small bodies, huge claws. And that's a good one, too. I mean, you can break them open, just dip them in almost anything, and they're they're pretty perfect. <laughs> so flavor compared to a dungeon is better, worse, just different? All of the above. I mean, in a dungeon is amazing. You can do that by itself. And I, I remember a buddy of mine and I, we worked at a restaurant there, and they sent us back with a bag of just Dungeness crab claws, probably, I don't know, back then, at least $500 worth of crab claws. And we came back with five. <laughs> and we just sat in the back and ate them, and we quit the next week. But it was, uh, they're <laughs> good. The they're, they're well, if you have an opportunity and they're fresh, they're, they're well worth doing. Even just lemon, and they're really good. But, yeah, I mean, it's, the ocean is definitely a, a haven of, of food for sure it's did you guys have you know fish in there a lot did you guys have like a favorite fish to eat because i notice everyone who spends a lot of time down there or lived down there they they all have something like we really love eating this particular fish i would say the mahi mahi is a good yeah. one it's uh I, it's almost equal to the amount of like salmon like if you know if you're going out you're going to catch and there i mean you could come in with 20 so there's not, at least back then, I don't know about now, but um, like the limit was just catch them. They're not invasive, but they're not like dying out by any means. They're not hurting on numbers. And so that was a, that was a good one. Um, you knew you were going to catch that, I guess I should say. Everything else, you'd catch a one-off of a sailfish or a wahoo or anything else, but like that was, you know, you're catching five yeah. to 10 of those. Yeah. I think those are like the fastest grown fish in the ocean, a foot a year or something like that. And that, they're hard oh. to beat because you, oh, they're so God. versatile for cooking. I mean, you can cook them. You so can many fry them. You can yeah. do anything. Bake That's them. my favorite saltwater fish to eat. They're, they're beautiful too. And they're, oh, a, they're a hell of a fight, you know? Yeah. They, and they can prepare it so many ways. Yeah. And I remember we had them like nuggets. Yeah. Like Gal made dolphin them, like fingers. Little dolphin fingers. Called, which yeah. was traumatizing yeah. the first time. Yeah. Dolphin fingers. Yeah. And they fight. I mean, all saltwater fish fight pretty good. I've never yeah. hooked into one that didn't fight, but uh, 
they're the, I think it's the mix of like the acrobatic coming out of the water thing I love about them so much, and they're just fast. And the color variation on them, like I've seen just on pictures online, you can see some that are really blue and some that are really, really yellow. Some that have kind of some white, some silver green. look to them. What about everywhere. like the 50-50? Have you ever seen some of those? Like yeah. I've seen pictures where, where like it goes the, up in color. Yeah, or horizontally or yes, even like front to back, like half of it's blue and half of it's green. It's like, wow, that's a wild looking fish. Well, the yeah. cool part there was, because they were so popular, is if you catch one, you never pull it out you make sure you hook another one because they stick around yeah. each other. And so you just, you find a pod and you're, you're in them. Yeah. The other cool thing is over there, and I don't know if you do it here, but I've never done it. But if you find like a, anything floating, oh yeah, like a weed line or sometimes you'll see like a, like a pontoon boat that had blown Man-made off another boat, but then they kind of start creating their own culture where then like small fish come and then, Bigger and it just turns into an ecosystem that that's if you find that like you yeah. all asked to that the like last fish time. in a oil rig in Texas or something yeah, oh, right yeah. yeah 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 the last time I was in Mexico where I caught one is is pretty big just trolling a plug and we had been trolling plugs like for a couple hours after that like it was so big I had to put a belt on it was a monster just right off his coast. And we had been trolling plugs for a couple hours, and the guide, his name's uh, Juan Carlos, he sees this big palm from floating in the water, and he threw some sardines. He's like, you guys want to kill more Dorado? And I was like, yeah. hell yeah, All we did. All day long. All, yeah, and it was, uh, there were so many fish under that one small floating thing. It was amazing. We caught, I think, 17 the first day. And down there, it's really strange because they have a different system for, for fish. It's You can keep two pelagics per person or five local fish and it's like you know i'm in a foreign country and we all have heard horror stories about mexican jails and i'm like hey man is it cool that we kill all these fish and he's like man this is mexico i'm like yeah what about the federalities he's like we'll just give him some beer and stuff dude it's cool don't worry about it and i was just like real you know at first i'm real nervous i'm like well if he says it's okay i guess we're gonna you know keep doing it right or share a cell yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a really nice city. It wouldn't have been that bad, you know. But it was like uh, an ecosystem under that one yeah. that one thing, which was amazing. I've never seen that living up here. Yeah, they must move in quick like that. <clears throat> uh, I, last thing I was going to say was just that it all started with talking about coasties and uh, growing up around here. But uh, I think that just to reiterate that it for me and for most people that it's passed down generationally, you know, it's not, it it is harder to just uh, maybe maybe if you didn't have that influence around or that parent, but um, so I'd like, I'd like to give props to my dad, you know, just to sit when we think about these kinds of things that, uh, and Adam too, you know, our dad's instilled a lot in us and and I'm sure you guys as well. Um, I wouldn't, you know, be half the fisherman or half the outdoorsman or half the man I am without the influence of my father. And uh, I will say that that is one thing that has given me more respect for the guys that didn't have that influence. The guys that figured it out on their own, and, and my dad was one of those guys. You know, his dad didn't teach him those things. And uh, we know a lot of guys... Uh, we've been blessed enough to have fathers that were really involved and taught us all that stuff. But, you know, more power to you that went out and figured it out on your own. But don't forget that 
you don't know everything and you can learn a lot from those around you. And, uh, you know, much respect for, for doing it on your own, but always there's something to be learned by all those people around you. And, uh, and some people are lucky enough to have those people closer to them than others. Yeah, that's well said. And that's, we talk about this a lot. It's all about family and tradition. It's not about necessarily the outcome of that picture holding up the fish. You know, that's the gravy on top. But if that doesn't happen, those memories with your dad, and for him too, he probably looks back at those pictures of you and those waiting boots from Bymart, you know, on the riverbank with him and all of his buddies going, you brought your kid, you know, and, but you were out there and you caught your first steelhead that way, you know, and that's a memory you guys will always have with each other. So I agree. I'll dovetail off of what you're both saying. Like I just went fishing with my old man, my brother, we caught 20 walleye on the Columbia. And then three months before that, he took me and my daughter on a guided tour. We caught, they were all natives, so I had to let them go on the Umqua. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it... Those are steelhead? Yeah. Yeah. And, and But, I mean, she caught an 18-pound steelhead. Wow. It was a donkey. It was. Hey, it good was for a her. big one. How awesome. old's your daughter? Uh, just turned 14. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lifetime memory. An 18-pound fish? I mean, that's a that's lifetime a fish. Oh, my, my old man that's framed a bunch beat. of, like, all of them, but that was, a, that was a shining glory for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I like to think... Uh, that we're part of like a culture that's like really long, the outdoorsman, you know? And for me, I kind of come from a broken family. So the only good memories I have are hunting and fishing with my dad. And that's really it. You know, I'm only tough because my dad took me hunting. Like I can, I can weather the storm literally. And you know, theoretically sometimes when it happens to me but that, those are the best memories i i have are being outside like the first time i ever saw an elk like my dad called in a bull screaming like it stuck with me my whole life the first big fish i ever caught the you know the presentation of the bait all those little things i learned from my dad and that was that's it and we're gonna do ourselves like that's what i like about it it's like about family like i have a kid and i'm already getting i mean she's like year and a half old so i got ways <laughs> to go but i'm already getting prepared for bringing her fishing <laughs> already like baiting lines yeah i mean ready. I, you know, I was talking to my dad i work with my dad and i said man you got that life jacket for my nephew he's like i think we got it i'm like do you think she's too small to put her on a boat this year nah she ain't too small <laughs> like, we'll get her on a boat well but and james you've taken your daughters out to that annual diamond lake fishing trip and got them going on we're going fishing and stuff we're going june first weekend in june it's free fishing weekend uh coming up here in oregon for those that don't know free fishing weekend first weekend in june you can take your kids out and we go there every every year uh since i was in third grade I've basically gone to Diamond Lake, and uh, they put on a great show for the kids, and uh, we stay in some cabins, and they do a fishing derby, and it's a blast. Yeah, so we're getting ready to do that again, and my kids have caught more rainbow, reeled in more rainbow trout than I don't. I did at their age. Yeah. My, my, my youngest is six, and my oldest is 11, but, uh, yeah, it's a blast. Well, and, and that's what it's about is passing it on to the next generation, taking that what we've gotten from our figures in our lives that have helped show us the things that we enjoy so much and passing it on to the next generation. Yeah. It's important because it keeps this thing going, you know, yeah. and it keeps people interested. And uh, I was, uh, 
at my parents' house this weekend. My mom was watching my daughter while I was at work, and I was just looking at some photos. I mean, some of the oldest photos we have in our family are fishing and hunting photos. You know, my great-grandfather, you know, God, he was probably in his 70s fishing, like fly fishing up on the uh, on the Willamette by the falls. You know, it's like, man, I want. I told my dad, I'm like, hey, when you die, I'm going to take that picture because I want it. And he's like, well, there's one of me down a little bit farther down. Take that one, you know, but that's what we have and it's you know it's important to keep them in it because it's like hunters and fishing numbers have kind of we think there's a lot of people but overall like the numbers have started to come down you know no one's doing it no one will do it that's just reality yeah and i no offense to your fence on that or your chef on that uh, trip, but I'd rather oh, I'd I rather have a, I, I some sashimi a than oh, I would have cooking that thing. <laughs> Was that the first big guy you ever caught? Yeah. 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 Are they cool looking? I've seen pictures of them. Yeah, it's beautiful. Did it fight hard? Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, I had a I had a rod that was made to catch anything from five hundred yeah, right. pounds yeah. to uh, makes it easy yeah. when it's that big. So a broomstick. Yeah, yeah but <laughs> it wasn't quite the same. That's yeah. what I I like guys who think like that because I'm the same way. It's like oh, can, how can I fish on this trip? Yeah, yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks for taking the time. It's good to see you. I haven't yep. seen you all in a while, so appreciate you coming. Yeah, thanks so, for having us. Yeah, thanks, thank guys. you.